Today, the learning experience looks much different than it did a few months ago. COVID-19 rocked learning environments around the globe, leaving even the most well-adjusted students adapting to new changes and challenges. Welcome to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the academic challenges that students struggling with anxiety face. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. The shift to online learning and widespread closures of schools has made the academic success increasingly difficult, especially for learners that already require additional resources. Arguably, all of us in some way have experienced heightened uncertainty brought on by the pandemic. And students already suffering from anxiety are facing increased obstacles with their parents and caregivers facing tough decisions and needing more support. On this week's episode, I'm sitting down with learning specialist Dan Villiers, the founder of the Anxiety Institute. He focuses on exposure therapy for treating anxiety in students. Dan has presented at universities and conferences across the country, authored numerous articles on child mental health, and appeared on radio and television as subject matter expert or adolescent anxiety. Today, we'll be discussing the return, or lack thereof, to the classroom and how caregivers to anxious students can set their kids up for success in such an uncertain environment. So Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into anxiety. I had some anxiety when I was younger. I was born, I think, a shy child. Then it sort of settled a little and then really spiked up when I was about 16 years old in high school. Saw a lot of therapists. A lot of it was the same. It was sort of process therapy and not a lot of strategy. I needed something more intensive to go from where I really was sort of not housebound, but there was very few things I could do in my life. My world became very small. I think it was the fifth or sixth therapist that I met. His model, which is the same model that I use today, is all about intensity and frequency of treatment. So the more you practice and repeat any skill, the more it turns into habit. And you can sort of develop that neurological uh, muscle memory, so to speak. And so it really inspired for me a passion to be a therapist, a passion to help out other people, because he really changed my life in, in the span of three months. Currently founded actually the Anxiety Institute in 2016. We're a, uh, an intensive day program for children and adolescents, young adults. And the basic best descriptor I could use is anxiety, fear, avoidance cycle where they have created a world where they're really protecting themselves from any of the triggers of anxiety and a real pervasive theme of a fear of failure, fear of the future, fear of independence. A lot of the themes I think that we're seeing today in the, in the smartphone generation. So Dan, you, you mentioned the uh, Anxiety Institute and your work there. Could you maybe just tell us about some of the techniques that the Anxiety Institute uses? We use cognitive behavioral therapy as, as the primary theoretical approach. CBT, as it's also known, focuses on thoughts, proving thoughts, basically, to change behavior. We feel that to create behavioral change and to see a transformative impact in one's life, first, you really got to work towards scaffolding those behaviors and gradually facing the things that you fear and avoid. Our model is called exposure-focused CBT. So the Anxiety Institute provides an intensive day program. It's four hours a day, five days a week. There's two individual hours of therapy, one with a, a primary therapist and the other is a behavioral coaching hour, uh, working on life skills and 
health, nutrition. And the third area is about wellness. Anxiety impacts you know, sleep, you know, what you eat, affects the relationship with your parents. It affects self-care. And this level that we work at, it's really resulted in a lot of hopelessness. Like, I doubt I can get better, or I doubt there's anyone who can help me. I don't think I'm going to get better. How would you say uh, technology has affected disorders like anxiety? Well, the research shows an extraordinary increase. Around, around 2010, 2011, which is about a, I think about a year after the smartphone came out, it was really the smartphone, I think, that created this dependency of on a device that can do pretty much everything for us. Of course, you've got your social media sites from Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and all these sites that really are part of it is portraying a part of your life or a part of your success, and it gets competitive. Teenagers by nature, they compare their worth based on how others are doing and very vulnerable to what they see online. I recently did a study looking at the impact of disaster news and distressing news on television and on our iPhones. There's a, a massive correlation between the number of hours on the phone and the amount of mental health issues that you will have. It's the reason why there has been a 700% increase in anxiety disorders. So Dan, how are you addressing the issues with technology at the Anxiety Institute? I mean, when they're in treatment, they cannot have their phone. And for some, that's really difficult because I would say more than half of students today are addicted to their phone. So how we're combating it is like you would with any addiction in many ways is first educating the nature of the problem and, and what's going on and the impact of how many hours has on developing anxiety and OCD and eating disorders, and then creating a very clear behavioral tech usage plan, setting restrictions, setting boundaries. I think parents should be aware of what their children are doing online. Do you see those tech issues exacerbating other underlying anxiety issues like agoraphobia or perfectionism? I definitely see perfectionism. Agoraphobia may be in the sense that now agoraphobia is, is marked by the fear of having a panic attack or a fear of being in a place where you can't escape easily if you have a panic attack. And so because of that, kids start to gradually avoid more things to a point where they're not doing anything at all. If they're playing video games all day or they're on Facebook all day, two things are happening. One, instead of experiencing the anxiety they may need to experience to push through it and do the exposure work to get out, it's reinforcing the avoidance, but it's also reinforcing the fact that, wow, these kids are in school, they're doing great, and here I am. And that's probably why four out of 11 students had a suicide plan. This is research done right after COVID, so this is unprecedented. COVID-19 is unprecedented. Global quarantine. We do not know how bad the full fallout from a mental health perspective will be. It has been my mission and our mission at AI to understand, um, be ready for that onslaught of need that we um, really want to be there for. So I think, you know, a lot of the brain science points to the connection of the left and the right side of the brain, connecting that sort of more creative part and the more analytical part. A lot of techniques in dealing with anxiety are about grounding that sort of creative half of the brain. So point to five things in the room that 
you can see, point to four things that you can hear on a scale of one to 10. How able do you feel to, to deal with that? So combining those two lobes of the brain, the creative and the more scientific, really, I think, holds the key to solving anxiety for all of us. We've talked about the Anxiety Institute's tactics and about exposure therapy. This fall, many caregivers have been presented with the option of sending their kids back to school. Many are choosing not to for obvious reasons. What would you recommend for an anxious learner? Should they go back to school, pursue their education at home? I think going back to school is, is a very difficult decision. It's based on a number of factors. One thing that I look at as an anxiety specialist is their history of attendance is one thing. So if they have struggled going to school on certain days, I would be a lot more trepidatious to do all in-home instruction or remote learning. That being said, first and foremost is physical safety. If you do decide to keep your child at home, it's very important that they have some, some support, more structure, obviously, and really prove that they are able to do that work at home. For kids who do decide to return to the classroom, I think a lot of things will be different. You know, talking about different class sizes, mask mandates, new protocols of all sorts. Do you think that's going to be triggering for kids with anxiety? We have already seen that. We knew it would happen. I mean, you know, anxiety is about a, a high degree of self-conscious awareness, hypersensitivity to your internal symptoms or stimuli, and whether it's heart rate or stomach aches, headaches, sweating, trembling. You're hyper aware because you can't control it. And then hyper aware to the things around you, your external stimuli. Now, when you're wearing a mask, it's not easy. I mean, the breathing is more restricted. At the basis and heart of all anxiety is the fight or flight freeze response that's driven by heart rate. And, you know, it's hard to work on breathing exercises with a mask on. Teens, absolutely children are more vulnerable to what other kids are thinking about in regards to I'm wearing a mask, the judgment. So are there tactics you'd recommend basically for managing this for kids with anxiety, dealing with the mask and the other protocols? I think really an authoritative parent approach. You must absolutely do this. It's we want you to do this because of these reasons. Let's sit down and talk about it. I want to explain the reasoning behind my decision. So it's not based on anything other than the safety that you will want to have and that we want to provide for you. You know, it's really how you communicate to your child too. I often recommend starting with open-ended questions, but listening to their concerns. I hear what you're saying and tell me more about it. The tell me more is critical because the child will know that the parent wants to get in their shoes. This is a bridge to common sense and mutual compromise and agreement. And then forming the child of the real risks. The challenge that anxiety professionals and kids with anxiety are dealing with is decoding between perceived threats and real threats. And anxiety by definition is a hypersensitivity towards possible or perceived threats, not actual threats. But for the first time, we're living in a landscape where it's not a perceived threat, it's an actual threat. I think empowering students in this current pandemic is really important, particularly with Zoom online education being such a passive experience. Regularly hear stories about parents who come in and see their kids are on YouTube or, you know, have shut the computer entirely and are fidgeting with something else. I think they really have to be the drivers of their own education because that's really the only way that we ever learn anything. You know, sitting there and being told, you know, you need to know what two plus two is. And I don't think that's how we learn at all. I think we learn by actively asking questions. 
and by being curious. And again, I think it's important that we're the drivers of our own learning. What does the future of education look like for students with anxiety? It's sort of hard to know. The future of education is returning to normalcy eventually. The reality is it's going to be about a vaccine eventually, you know, whether it's six months or two years. That's what's really going to change things or return things to the way you know, they needed to be. And the key is how to adapt to the real threats and to the challenges of the social distancing and the safety requirements and the hybrid model at school. This is all about uncertainty, the things we can't control. Kids with anxiety like to know as much as they can about the future. You know, what school's going to look like? How many kids are going to be in the classroom? How will it change participation? How will it affect my ability to get into college? So I think the future of education will return to the way it was pre-COVID in many ways. But what will change, and, and this is positive, is kids' ability and comfort with doing remote academics, which maybe increase their access to remote tutoring. Uh, more people than ever, more teens are seeking therapy than ever before. Remote therapy is sort of safer for some kids or feels like an easier gradual exposure step to going into that office for 50 minutes and face-to-face. And so uh, we actually use a model where, no, you can start remote and, and do sort of teletherapy. And, um, and then when you feel ready and comfortable, you know, come on in for a session. Yeah, you got to think, I mean, we've strengthened that muscle and it'll be for almost a year at least, you know, for kids using the online resources doing online education, you got to think that's not going to go completely away afterwards. I mean, these are foundational years for a lot of these kids too. You got to think there's going to be some sort of evolution, but I think some other changes, I mean, we've seen an increase in from the small things, but big things, commitment to recycling, more teenagers and young adults recycling than ever before. More teens and young adults are spending time with their parents. Kids are more likely to do chores, help around the house. Now, I fear as an anxiety specialist for anxious kids that could reinforce, you know, the avoidance that we've either liberated them from or will bring kids that wouldn't have needed our help to come to us. That's my fear. Two things I'd like to say. benefit that we have got in our evolution and adapting to COVID is we have been able to access more clients around the world with severe anxiety, something that it just didn't come to our consciousness that that would be a possibility. As I think there's going to be huge academic uh, benefits um, you know, it was like X percent, very high percent were in school. And then there was a percentage that were having in-home instruction because of health or mental health disabilities. And there wasn't the experience to do that right. The school maybe didn't have quite the confidence and the structure to deliver that the way they need. You did bring up something pretty interesting. I think intellectually, there are more capabilities. I mean, my daughter has how many more hours in the day to read? I mean, she's, <laughs> she's practically read through the library now because she's had so much time on her own. What I worry about, I guess, is the socio-emotional you know, development. There's going to be uh, even more of a sort of uh, difference or distinction between those two things. Um, so you're going to end up with a lot of really intelligent kids who don't know how to interact in a group. We've seen that happen already. I mean, really, you know, smartphone 2010, the dramatic double, you know, spike, and it was, you know, 18 to 20 pence spike in uh, over a three, four year period from 10 to 2014 uh, in anxiety because of increasing isolation, you know, not learning the skills to develop those connections, build the confidence to set up that time. 
less activity, physical activity. And in a world within a world, a, a virtual ideal world kind of thing, ideal in their mind. The biggest thing I see when they go on social media and, and what they see is so many young people extremely successful. They hear about the kids who got into Cornell. They hear about a 29-year-old that made a billion dollars in Silicon Valley. And they're thinking, how the hell do I get just a freaking job? Anxiety has impacted my school, my life, my world's getting smaller. There are 20 steps to get to the point where I need to just graduate. And then I'm seeing all this stuff on Facebook. When I'm overwhelmed and I can't do the things that I need to do, what do I do? I cave. I just fold inward because it's, it's sort of too overwhelming. And so what we do is really help kids scaffold and take one step at a time and not let them sabotage treatment and their own recovery because they're thinking, why am I not on step five? They say, I used to be able to run and now I can barely walk. That may be true, but it doesn't mean you give up trying to learn how to, to walk and run again. Lastly, what would you like caregivers to take away from this conversation? Three things. The opportunity to improve the relationship with your child. It's difficult. You have to reset boundaries, the boundaries that may not have been there before in regards to the news they watch and the technology they have. Takeaway messages. My passion is preventing anxiety. And prevention is about understanding the nature of anxiety, its relationship with fear, and communicating and modeling in the home as best you can that that threat that they feel is out there and that we may know is out there too, or the fears that we have as parents in other areas of our life, to really control what your child sees. You don't have to be this perfect parent that never argues and doesn't have their own concerns and fears. No, you can share that, but be mindful of kids pick up everything. As you once said to me, Alex, as we had kids sort of at the same time, they pick up everything and um, their world, their sort of hierarchy of needs is about food, shelter, safety. So the last thing I'd like to say is this, when a child is anxious about something they've seen or heard, you know, acknowledge, I understand you're anxious, that is concern. I want you to know that I am not concerned for our safety. I acknowledge you feeling that way. I felt that way before, but do you know what? I have been thinking about this a lot and I am not concerned for our safety. Allow the child to, it's, you don't even have to say, and you don't either, because it'll be implied. And it's the delivery. Uh, and sometimes you do have to fake it till you make it. What is life about? It's about making our kids safe. They don't have the intellectual and neurological development to cope with a death or a loss. And we won't think about it because it, it, won't, it won't help us move forward. I mean, we start ruminating about sort of death every day. But a child's world, no, it's egocentric. The world is about them and who are their gods and masters, their parents. Some of the key takeaways from my conversation with Dan were, number one, the authoritative parenting model that he brought up. I thought that was really interesting. The authoritative model being one where you're establishing sort of clear boundaries. Luckily, my wife is, is a bit more authoritative than I am. I'm a bit of a softie as a parent. 
So I think it's important to sort of know your strengths and weaknesses as a parent and be able to provide the child with that authoritative parenting style, setting sort of clear boundaries. I think that does sort of provide a sense of comfort for an anxious kid. Number two, he did emphasize too validating you know, a child's concerns. And I think that's just kind of an important parenting point to begin with. You know, saying, I hear you, I understand your feelings. And I'm sure a lot of them don't feel understood at all, feel very isolated and alone and kind of destroyed inside by this. I mean, the only way to process those things is to, is to bring them to the surface. And it takes incredible patience to process those things. But I think it's really important to take those moments and listen. Third, I would say his point about kids wanting to be on step 20 when they really should be focused on sort of step one really sticks out to me as well. I especially see it in profiles of kids who are somewhat perfectionist, which I think you see increasingly today. And in this pandemic, I mean, they expect everything to be just like it was before. You know, why can't I have this physics problem mastered by now? Why can't I be able to, to juggle all the different parts of my life, from, you know, from soccer to the relationships with my siblings to everything else? That perfectionism isn't gone anywhere. I mean, it's still there. So I think getting to back off and to sort of zoom out a little bit, I think is really important. Thanks for listening to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that helps caregivers of anxious learners overcome obstacles to find academic success and build continuously happy lives. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. See you next time.